Petey Heart, Pediatric Cardiologist Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this program. I am Professor of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Thank you for joining me for the 175th episode of the podcast. I hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode on the topic of POTS shunts for the palliation of pulmonary hypertension. We spoke with Professor R. Mark Grady of Washington University in St. Louis about this topic. For those of you with an interest in pulmonary hypertension, I'd recommend you take a listen to last week's episode 174. As I say every week, if you'd like to get in touch with me, my email is easy to remember. It's pdhart at gmail.com. This week, we move on to the world of the Fontan and specifically cardiac MRI as well. And we'll be reviewing a paper on the topic of changes in the diameter or the cross-sectional area of Fontan patients. The title of the work we'll be reviewing is Progression in Fontan Conduit Stenosis and Hemodynamic Impact During Childhood and Adolescence. The first author of this work is Neil Patel, and the senior author, Andrew Chang. And this work comes to us from the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, USC. When we're done reviewing the paper, Dr. Neil Patel has kindly agreed to speak with us about this work. Therefore, I think we should move straight on to the article and then our conversation with Dr. Patel. This week, we enter back to the Fontan, and the authors begin with a number of general comments about why it is that we believe the external conduit Fontan may be superior to the prior old-style right atrial anastomosis or lateral tunnel approaches, and how some data now suggest that this approach has been associated with lower mortality and morbidity. Despite this, they remind us that though 18 or 20 millimeter conduits are usually used, the optimal size of conduit is not known. And you'll recall that we discussed this issue previously in episode 84 when we discussed it with Dr. Ari Cedars, now of Johns Hopkins University. The authors then also reference prior small works suggesting that conduit cross-sectional area decreases over time and how this may even require intervention. With this as a background, the authors of this work sought to characterize Fontan conduit size changes over time and also to see if these decreases in conduit cross-sectional area affect cardiac output or exercise capacity, as well as pulmonary arterial growth. This was a retrospective cross-sectional study of patients at Children's LA between 2013 and 2019 who were Fontan patients and who were referred for CMRs, CATHs, and or cardiopulmonary exercise stress tests. Most of the studies were usual surveillance studies on these patients, and ultimately, 165 patients were identified of which 93 had a CMR and 87 a cath, but seven total patients were removed as they had lateral tunnel fontans. And the authors tell us that 61 patients underwent CPET testing, of whom 40 had a cath and an exercise stress test, and 21 a CMR and an exercise stress test. The authors review their methodology for measuring the fontan in multiple locations and how they determine the cross-sectional area. They also review how standard treadmill, Bruce, or cycle ergometer tests were performed for stress tests. And on to the results. As usual, there are many data here, and so I'll summarize some of the more pertinent findings. First, and perhaps most important, there was a significant reduction in Fontan cross-sectional area in the majority of patients, with a median percentage decrease in the minimum cross-sectional area of 33%, and an average cross-sectional area reduction of 24%. Second, the conduit size did not affect the percentage decrease in conduit cross-sectional area, with similar decreases seen in the 16, 18, and 20 millimeter conduit patients, either for the minimal conduit cross-sectional area or the average one. Third, 
This change in Fontan's size was seen as early as a year after the operation and did not seem to progress with time. Next, the median Nakata index was 177.6 millimeters squared per meter squared and was not affected by the ratio of the cross-sectional area to body surface area. Interestingly, on exercise stress testing, the authors found that the Fontan cross-sectional area to body surface area was not associated with cardiac index, but a larger Fontan cross-sectional area to body surface area did have a modest correlation with percentage predicted oxygen consumption. In their discussion, the authors state, and I quote, we observed a significant decrease in Fontan cross-sectional area over a mean follow-up of 10 years. We noted a significant decrease in both minimum and average Fontan conduit cross-sectional area as early as six months after the Fontan surgery, and these findings are similar to previous smaller and shorter-term follow-up studies. The investigators comment on the lower-than-average Nakata indices and how this did not change with time and how PA growth has been shown to be below normal in Fontan patients in prior works, with the negative impact on hemodynamics, but they don't know if the Nakata index obtained in this work is truly going to be associated with worse outcomes. They re-emphasize the finding that exercise studies in this work showed that on average, patients had moderately decreased exercise capacity and impaired ventilatory efficiency. They comment on how the conduit diameter did not increase with somatic growth, and how this will likely result in increased conduit resistance over time. The authors then comment on prior works looking at optimal Fontan conduit size, looking at such things as energy loss, flow stagnation, and conduit thrombosis. They wonder if novel biomaterials may allow for conduit growth and may provide patient-specific solutions that adapt to changes in body size and cable flow distribution. They reference prior computational fluid dynamic modeling showing that conduit minimum diameter, as measured here in conjunction with minimum cross-sectional area in the SVC, RPA, and LPA, are all associated with worse exercise performance and how challenging it is to determine the relative contributions of each. And so they conclude, In this large, single-center study of patients with Fontan physiology, we observed a significant decrease in Fontan conduit cross-sectional area over a mean follow-up period of 10 years, these changes in cross-sectional area were observed as early as six months after surgery. Percentage cross-sectional area loss was also independent of initial conduit size. Conduit cross-sectional area indexed to body surface area was not associated with cardiac index or pulmonary artery size, but did correlate with exercise capacity. Well, I think you'll agree that this is an important and somewhat frightening study and that it basically shows that the conduit cross-sectional area in most patients with a Fontan gets smaller by about a quarter to a third. This clearly cannot be good for any Fontan patient. We all know at this point that we are not especially good at assessing the PVR in these single ventricle patients, and we've all likely seen Fontan patients with what would seem to be good hemodynamics with a low calculated resistance, low transpulmonary gradient, but still with multiple problems like ascites or low cardiac output and the so-called failing Fontan patient. It's clear that our understanding of this physiology is incomplete at best, and having some patients with conduits that are so small seems suboptimal. One wonders, for example, if these changes in conduit diameter and cross-sectional area are partially responsible for liver disease in our Fontan patients, and should we be intervening to bring all of our conduits back to their original diameters? 
Is there a chance that the lateral tunnel may have had some advantages, for certainly they have been shown to get even larger with time? Is that better for hemodynamics over the long haul? I think this is a lot to think about, and for this reason, we should probably move on to our conversation with the first author of this work, Dr. Patel. Neil Patel is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Southern California and a staff interventional cardiologist at Children's LA. He is a graduate of St. Louis University School of Medicine, and he completed his residency at Rush University, followed by general cardiology and interventional cardiology fellowships at Children's LA. It is a great pleasure to welcome him to the podcast to speak about this work. Welcome, Dr. Patel. I'm here now with Professor Neil Patel. Dr. Patel, thank you very much for joining us this week on the podcast. Uh, hi, Dr. Pass. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is a great opportunity. I really uh, appreciate uh, you asking me to do this. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining. You know, uh, very much enjoyed this work, very provocative. You know, your work showed impressive reductions in the cross-sectional area of extracardiac Fontan patients, uh, conduits. I was wondering if you could share with the audience what you believe is the most common reason for this happening. Is it simply an anatomical geometry issue, like a kink in the Fontan conduit, or is it instead some kind of debris forming a rind on the inside of the conduit? That's a great question. Um, so I think there are several factors that, that play a role in this. Uh, we observed a significant loss in the cross-sectional area, even in patients that had imaging of the conduit soon after their uh, Fontan operation. So I think one of the main causes of this early loss is uh, the geometry of the conduit at the time of implantation. Um, these conduits usually are not perfectly straight. They usually have a, a curve to them. And because of that, they don't retain their um, circular shape and are instead more of an oval. And that, that causes essentially an immediate loss in the cross-sectional area. Hmm. Um, I also do think that with time, they do get a, a peel or a rind um, along the walls of the conduit. And lastly, there may be thrombus that, that layers along the wall as well. I see, I see. Uh, very interesting. So it's basically happening essentially at the time of implantation, really. Yep, yep. Wow. You know, the Nakata index in all Fontan patients is generally less than that seen in age-matched normal patients, and that proved to be the, the same in your work. It was of interest uh, that patients with 18-millimeter conduits, though, seem to have higher Nakata indices than either the smaller or the larger conduits. I was wondering if you thought this was a real finding that's reproducible, or do you think, and do you think like 18 is a sweet spot, or was this sort of a statistical mistake or error? Yeah, I, I actually don't think this is a true finding. I think it was more of a uh, potentially statistical mistake. Um, we only had seven patients that had 20 millimeter conduits mm -hmm. compared to 28 with the 16 millimeter conduits, and then over 103 or with 103 with the um, 18 millimeter conduits. So uh, given the relatively small number of patients with 16 and 20 millimeter conduits, I, I think it's hard to draw any significant conclusions from this, from this trend. Sure. Um, also, as far as what we know, we know that the majority of pulmonary, pulmonary artery growth occurs early in life. And I, I don't think these conduits affect the amount of pulmonary blood flow a, a young child is having. Um, and therefore, I don't think it will significantly impact uh, their pulmonary artery growth. I see. In other words, the growth is largely happening before the patients ever even have a Fontan, basically. Yes. I see. Uh, you know, I was wondering, exercise capacity was limited by reductions in the Fontan cross-sectional area in your work, but the cardiac index was not. I'm wondering if, what your thoughts were on why that might be. 
So in general, we observed that the cardiac index, when measured both by cath or by MRI, was mildly decreased in, in the patient cohort as a whole. We also saw that the percent predicted peak VO2 was mildly decreased. And in our uh, multiple regression analysis, we found that there was an association between the minimum conduit uh, cross-sectional area that was indexed to body surface area with both the um, percent predicted peak VO2 and the percent predicted VO2 at anaerobic threshold. So what this suggests is that the cross-sectional area of the conduit may not be a limiting factor for a patient at rest, but with exertion, someone with a smaller conduit may be more limited in their ability to increase their cardiac output. I, I think it's also important to keep in mind that uh, there are probably many other factors that play a role um, in, in their exercise capacity, such as conditioning, PA size, the location of the fontan, yeah. heart rate response, AV valve regurgitation, or ventricular function. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, that's very uh, interesting and important. Thank you. You know, uh, given that the majority of the patients uh, in this work are asymptomatic, and based on your findings, I was wondering if you would make any recommendations regarding recatheterizing patients or performing CMRs to assess the conduit for possible intervention. And would you, what would it take for you to think about re-intervening in a patient who had this typical 30% reduction in cross-sectional area? And so I think it's important for all of these patients that have both a cardiac MRI and cardiac catheterization at some point during their t- teenage years as a part of their routine surveillance and in our institution, that's, that's part of our protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, during the CATHs, we have found that many of these patients require interventions. Most of them are on the PAs, but there are some that we intervene on the Fontan conduit as well. Mm-hmm. I think uh, seeing a 30% reduction in the cross-section area in itself would not necessarily push me to intervene, but if the patient had other, was, was symptomatic or has significantly reduced exercise capacity, um, had significant liver fibrosis on their biopsy, or their IUVC looked dilated. Um, those are things I would consider when thinking about intervening on these conduits. I see, I see. Well, I really appreciate you giving us so much time uh, today. Thank you very much. It's late, later in the day in uh, California, even later here in New York. So I'm going to finish up with uh, one last question. You know, um, this there's a lot of things about the extracardiac fontan that are obviously beneficial and seem to be superior to older style fontans. I'm wondering, based on these data, what do you think is the future of the fontan? Do you think that there needs to be adjustments in the manner in which these are done? Um, should we go back to the lateral tunnel fontan, uh, which can get larger with time? Uh, what are your thoughts on you know what the future holds for this? Yeah, I, I think, well, first of all, we still haven't identified what the ideal conduit size in, uh, in a patient is. And it's probably an individualized thing where each patient, depending on their um, ventricular morphology, uh, their PA anatomy, where their Fontan comes in, um, it, it probably varies based on for each patient. Mm-hmm. But I think... Um, most likely what, what would be the best thing is to have a smaller conduit in a, in a child at a young age so it minimizes the stagnation of flow but then can become larger with, with time in an older child or as an adult. And so I think the things that you know you, you could consider are, are a biological graft that can grow with the patient that's been reported in the literature or um, a synthetic conduit that is designed to be further, further dilated with time so you can actually stretch it out as, as the child grows.
Mars. I see. Well, those are very poss- very exciting possibilities for the future. Well, Dr. Patel, I want to thank you, and I want to congratulate you and all of your authors, Dr. Cheng and all the other authors, on a really interesting work. Uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast, and again, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Well, I think you'll agree that this was a very interesting topic this week, and Dr. Patel, a great guest offering us some thoughts on the reasons for conduit narrowing with time, and also some very interesting ideas about possible novel materials for Fontaine construction in the future that will potentially be more tailored to the individual patient and patient size. I'm most appreciative of Dr. Patel for making some time to speak with us this week on the podcast. To conclude this 175th episode of Petey Heart, we'll hear the wonderful American lyric coloratura soprano, Ruth Ann Swenson, who's a native New Yorker and who has appeared on opera stages all over the globe, most notably at the Metropolitan Opera, where she has performed well over 200 times. Today we hear her sing the Guno Romeo and Juliet aria, Juliet's Waltz. Thank you very much for joining us, and thanks too to Dr. Patel. I hope all have a nice week ahead.
Oh, oh.